My name is uh, Tim Blackman, and uh, for the last four years I've had the privilege of being the, uh, the chaplain at Wheaton College. Uh, before that I was a pastor in uh, The Hague, the Netherlands, which is my uh, hometown, born and raised uh, in the Netherlands. And I know some of you have Dutch last names, but uh, that ain't the real thing unless you're actually born and raised there. So uh, I've, lived, uh, I've lived in the U.S. Uh, twice now and uh, married to a school teacher. And uh, my wife has taught at Ontario Christian. Now is uh, teaching in the, uh, the western suburb of Chicago. But um, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be with you and uh, excited to talk together. I thought we'd begin this time by, uh, by asking the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we, we want to, to echo the psalmist's words, uh, the prayer that you would establish the work of our hands. That some of the most important work we can do is the building of the communities, the schools, the institutions, the organizations, the classrooms, and the families and churches that we are a part of. We know that that is one of the most important things we can do as Christians. Uh, we pray this morning for uh, the power of your spirit to give us insight, uh, give us the awareness of patterns and practices and habits and dispositions that may or may not contribute to the well-being of the communities we lead. One way or the other, Lord, we pray that this morning would be uh, an encouragement to all of us. I thank you for this time, and I thank you for every person here in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by, uh, by reading something to you. And I'm wondering if, if this sounds uh, familiar to you. Uh, before I read this, it, it might be helpful for me to know. I know I've, met, I've had a chance just before, the last few moments uh, to meet a few of you. How many of you are in the classroom every day? Okay. How many of you are administrators? Okay. Staff at, at a school in other roles? Okay. So either teachers or administrators. Uh, very helpful to know. Uh, listen, listen, listen to this. Or actually, actually, also, how many of you are involved in any way in your local church? Okay. Listen to this. Come on in. This breakdown could have been avoided, but then. Few breakdowns in the community are inevitable. In this case, some folks made several poor decisions. Other people responded poorly to those poor decisions. More decisions, more responses, more trouble. Words were exchanged, positions hardened, sides drawn up. Rumors flew, and even when folks knew... They were rumors. They repeated them until it was very difficult to discern what had really happened. Starting to ring a bell, probably for some of you. People were angry and hurt. Uh, some conversations stopped and new alliances were formed. Only certain people knew about key meetings. A lot of energy was expended in determining motives, justifying decisions, 
and anticipating the opposition's next move. Regular activities continued, but the life was drained out of them. Everything seemed hollow. Small acts and casual comments were freighted with huge symbolic meaning. Everyone felt undervalued and betrayed by someone. A number of people threatened to leave. The meltdown had taken on a life of its own. Friends questioned one another's commitments. Grumbling and weariness became highly contagious. Disagreements took strange turns. Old differences and hurts came to the surface and played into the present trouble in unpredictable ways. Some people ducked and determined to weather the storm without being drawn into it, and others defected into place, showing up when the occasion required it, but emotionally and relationally were absent or detached. Well, I could go on, but you can hear the kinds of problems and challenges many of us face in a community. How many of you have ever been part of trouble in a community? Okay, most of you, if you didn't raise your hand, you've just not been around one long enough. I am quoting from a book by Christine Pohl called Living into Community, Cultivating Practices That Sustain Us. And Christine has been teaching at Asbury Seminary for the last 30 years or so. And in 2002, uh, she invited me and... 11 other pastors and three leaders of nonprofits and three professors to become part of a research project. And uh, what Christine was after was trying to figure out what is it that makes communities thrive? Are there, are there some practices that all healthy communities seem to have in common? Are there a few trademark distinctives that are always part of thriving Christian communities. Now, it was, a, it was a fascinating group to be part of. We, we met uh, twice a year for, three, for, for a week at a time for four years in a row. So we had a lot of time together. And uh, we were from all over the country. The pastors were, uh, I, was a, I was a church planter in Sacramento at the time. Other people were in established churches. Uh, there was a couple of professors. One person led a halfway house another person a community center in Appalachia, another person a homeless center. So basically, all, the only thing that we really had in common was that we were, we were all Christian. We were all part of either a nonprofit, an educational community, or a church. But really, the, the, what, what we all had in common really was that there was people involved in a Christian organization. And, and this was the challenge, to try to come together over a four-year period, sponsored by the Lilly Foundation, actually, and to figure out well, what is it that makes uh, communities thrive. But you, you might imagine that the, uh, the first time that we got together, uh, we started comparing uh, war stories. And one of the things that was clear to us that we all felt incredibly strongly about this. And there, there was this sense that, uh, and, and it actually goes with the theme of our conference, you know, establishing the work of our hands. 
that one of the most important things that we can do is, as teachers and preachers and leaders and administrators is not just the educating and the spiritual formation of the people that we're leading, but it is also the leading of redemptive communities. It is the building of institutions. It is the uh, leading thriving Christian communities is, a, is an absolutely crucial and essential part of what we do. Well, one of the things that was tricky for us is that we, in the first few meetings, actually had a difficult time coming up with lots of examples of all the wonderful communities that we had come up with uh, that had, or that we had been part of. Uh, what, we, what we could find, however, were lots of examples of the kind that I just read in, where uh, there was trouble and mayhem and someone got fired and there were hurt feelings and there were broken hearts and there were disappointments. Now, before, before you end up in the corner of the room in a fetal position, reminded of all the trouble that you might be in right now, I want you to take a moment, I want you to take a piece of paper out or do it on your computer. I think it's after that talk today, I think it is okay to have your laptop or your phone out. <laughs> and I want, you, I want you to think about this question for a moment. What is the biggest challenge you face in your current community? Now, of course, for most of you, you're going to think immediately about your school. But you may also want to think about your home or your church community or any other organization that you may be a part of. Think right now of what is the most challenging, humbling, disappointing element of the community life that you are in right now. I'm going to give you a few moments and then we're going to compare notes. For many of you, things are starting to come to mind, situations that you are in. I know some of you here are, are here with colleagues, uh, but I do want to ask you, it would be interesting to hear from some of you the kinds of challenges uh, that you are facing right now. Who wants to volunteer? Just raise your hand and, and let us know in a sentence or so the kind of challenge that you find most debilitating. Yes? I'm in a Christian school that's church-run. A couple churches contributed and uh, oversee it. And then the one church broke in two, so there was a split-away church. Okay. The school did not break apart, but our school community is of the this church which has broken apart. And so there's a lot of hurt there, families. Yep. Some part of the family went to the one, some stayed in the other. How do we... Continue. Everyone is very pro Christian education, but sure. you just have different um, okay. groups. And how long has this trouble been in the making? Oh, it happened in the 90s, so it's been a long And you're time. still dealing with it? It's still there. Okay. All right. Let's have a moment of silence. <laughs> wow. Someone else. Some trouble that you see. 
Yes. I wrote talking the talk but not walking the walk. Okay. At least from my perspective, people claiming that they're following what the Bible is saying and yeah, treating other humans without a lot of dignity, without a lot of regard for the fact that they also are seeking to follow Christ. Okay. All right. That's people trouble. That's real. Yeah. And I think right behind you, I saw a hand up as well. Yeah. Um, kind of more generic, but just convincing individuals in the community that community values need to be put with their individual ones so people are just being too selfish okay. and only using the community for their benefit but not being willing to do things for the benefit of the community. Okay, alright. And how long have you seen that as a pattern? Um, came to a point over the last year or two in our school system but I think maybe it's a bigger problem society-wide too, right? Everything yeah. is more yeah. individualistic these days, it seems. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, all the way in the back. Again, maybe too general, but anytime there's the imperative to do something or do something differently or, or slightly change course, you know, I think about, like, my family, when we're playing in the backyard, that's great, but, all right, time to go in for dinner. Oh, you know, time we have to change, you know, and I see that in our school communities, we're moving to standards-based grading, and, you know, some teachers really resisting. Why do we have to change what we're doing? We're doing a good job. We're on this course. And that's where all the dissension comes. And that's where the, you know, frustration comes in. Okay. Okay. Great. That's a great example. Yeah. I mean, not, it's not great. But <laughs> it's real. <laughs> okay. Someone else. You don't have to name names. Yes. This is echoes of the last two that were spoken, but... Um, a community looking to change and wanting to take good things and make them better and people being resistant to moving toward positive change, just wanting the status quo, wanting the state not change in okay. any way. Okay. All right. Yes, ma'am. That um, must be a theme. What I wrote down is having harmonious buy-in to change. And the other one that I wrote down is sustained commitment to excellence. Okay. All right. Anyone else have a pressing yes challenge that you face in community? Um, I'm fairly new to our environment, um, but the what I've realized and noticed is um, we have a wide range of faith, meaning there's people that are strong in their faith, and there's others who really don't have a faith. And so, you know, it's how do you gather that all together into a community that's like-minded and yeah. unity and unified that way? Okay. So it's a good, it's a good challenge. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. I no, no, no. Go, go for it. I, I think that the political climate, too, has kind of turned over the last years into um, an elephant that nobody talks about. <laughs> No, um, no pun intended. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, and, and it's, it's just an interesting thing that, to see how people, both at church and at school, kind of have, have where 10 years ago, there was active discussion with respect. Yeah. Now it's no talking about it. This is forbidden. Yeah. You know, I'll have to leave it at the door. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that, I think, stems from an us versus them mentality yes. and an intolerance that goes with that. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay, so, so you can imagine, uh, 
uh, put a bunch of teachers and administrators in a room, or in the case of our research project, a bunch of pastors and professors and leaders of nonprofits in a room. And we begin noticing certain patterns. One of the things that we realized as we were researching this for four years is that uh, we really had not been, uh, had not found a comprehensive framework, a way of understanding, almost a taxonomy of understanding what was happening in each of our communities. But we began telling stories like the ones that you're telling now. And I imagine if we got together over a casual meal, there would be lots and lots more to each of those stories. I mean, going back all the way to the 90s or things that are intensified because of the election. And each of those stories, there are, there are people involved. There are names. There are jobs at stake. There are students and families and uh, your, your well-being, your emotional, spiritual, relational being is at stake. What we began to notice over four years was that there were certain patterns that we saw in every toxic organization that were almost always there. And then there were certain practices that we saw in every healthy organization. And what I'm going to do with you this morning is I want to share what those practices of healthy organizations look like and what their deformations look like. It'll be interesting to see uh, where in each of your problematic, miserable situations, uh, these, these uh, may show up as well. So one of the things that we began to notice is that nobody wants to be part of a toxic organization. It is absolutely miserable. Uh, the, the impact on your life, on your health, on your well-being, on your desire to go to work, nobody wants to be part of that. But all 18 of us, one way or another, had been part of one of those. And one of the telltale signs of a toxic communication, the first thing that we saw, is that there was always a sense of exclusion. And with exclusion we mean not just the average exclusion that you might have in the second grade, somewhere in middle school, but it's the same sense that there are some who belong here or some who don't. Now, for each of your schools, that may be different. Uh, it may be uh, that if you don't have a Dutch last name, you don't belong. Uh, if you're not Republican or you're not Democrat, you don't belong. Uh, some people may feel excluded because they don't have a lot of money. And maybe in some schools, uh, the socioeconomic differences are really, it's the haves and the have-nots, and it's, it's really the telltale sign uh, that you don't really fit in. Now, if you've ever been, how many of you have ever felt excluded? One way or the other. Okay. Almost all of us, one way or the other, know exactly what that feels like. So I, I grew up in the Netherlands in kind of a bilingual home. Dad was American. Mom was Dutch. I don't exactly look like the average Dutch person growing up in The Hague. So for my Dutch friends, I was always too American and sounded a little too English. And for my Dutch friends, I was too dark. Or for my English-speaking friends, I was not American enough. And so there was always the sense of never quite fitting in. And I think there were a few things as, as lonely and as debilitating as not feeling like you belong somewhere. And what's, what's interesting is, I imagine this is true 
not only for toxic classrooms for our students, but it can also be the case for a teacher. Maybe you've been at a place for a decade and you still feel like you don't quite belong. This was one of the telltale signs. All the toxic organizations that we had a chance to study, uh, exclusion was always a part of it. On the contrary, part of a thriving organization, the healthy version of that is a community marked by hospitality. Now, the, the, here's what's interesting. Uh, we, we, we spent a lot of time uh, talking about hospitality, also because Christine's earlier book was called Making Room, and it's really a study of the ancient practice of hospitality. Uh, the, the Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia. Uh, philoxenia is the Greek word for the love of the stranger. And in, in each of our healthy communities, there was always a sense of welcome, that the community was open to people who were not like us, who were maybe from a diff different uh, racial or ethnic or socioeconomic background. Uh, maybe I would imagine that there's ways that a classroom can either be exclusive towards the really smart kids or those uh, who have a very hard time uh, studying. That a hospitable classroom or a community breathes life and it says, we're glad you're here. Welcome. It is good for you to be here. Now, one of the things that we notice that hospitality is both a practice, it shows up in the things that you actually do, but it is also a, a disposition. It is an attitude towards other people. It is the way, you can actually probably see in people's eyes whether or not you are wanted at a lunch table, in a classroom, at a school, in the teacher's lounge. You can tell whether or not they want you there. And we all know that people go wherever they're wanted. And so a, a sign of a thriving community is, uh, is hospitality. One of, the, one of the practical ways that we began noticing this is that there's a, there's a great Latin word for this, a provisio. It means to to see beforehand or to anticipate that a hospitable community is always anticipating the needs of people who may not yet be here but who might show up. Think about that for a moment. It is, it is a disposition and a practice that makes preparations for people who are not yet here but who might show up. So, so what would happen in a classroom if you would anticipate a student with a learning disability, that's provisio, you're anticipating their need. They may, not, they may not be in your classroom yet, but they're coming. And you are making the right kinds of preparations to anticipate their needs. Uh, we do this in the church all the time. We're constantly thinking about uh, the people that are not yet here, but they might be coming. What are the things that we can do to help prepare for them? Now, of course, this is a, a deeply biblical idea. I mean, it, I, could go, I could talk for, for hours about the theology of hospitality. Uh, but you see it already as early in, let's say, the book of Leviticus. Uh, God says to the Israelites, who have just, by the way, been rescued out of, out of Egypt. And he says to them, 
take good care of the stranger in your midst. Because remember, you yourselves were stranger. Actually, the translation is, remember the heart of a stranger because you yourselves were strangers. In other words, do you remember what it's like to feel excluded? Do you remember what it's like to not have a place, to not have power, to not have access to resources and connections? And use that, use your empathetic imagination to envision what it's like to be on the outside looking in. He's telling this to the Israelites. And he's telling them to practice provisio, to anticipate the needs of the people that are not yet here. Uh, one of the reasons why, uh, one of the stories actually I began to tell was a story that was deeply imprinted into my life as a kid by my, my dad. So imagine this, my dad was born... In, in 1923, in Four Oaks, North Carolina, he was a very black man in Raleigh, North Carolina, in the early 20s and 30s. Uh, you might imagine all the reasons why he ended up moving to Europe uh, and, never, and never went back. And I, I remember how with tears in his eyes, he told me the story is how when he was a college student, in the, uh, he served in the war and then came back and he was at, it was at Howard University studying music. And there were two elderly ladies in a church that he went to. He went to an all-black church, and there were two white ladies who also lived together. I don't know if they were lovers or friends or married, who knows, whatever. But there were two white ladies who went to an all-black church who had heard him sing. And they took an interest in him. And they asked him to their home for dinner. Now... At this time, my dad is in his late 20s. He has never had a meal with a white person in their home. And they said something to the effect of, we noticed you, we think you're an interesting young man, and we would like to have you over for dinner. And so they, they gave him instructions. They said, uh, you have to come at dusk because we don't want our neighbors seeing that a black man's coming over to our to our house, and would you please mind using the alleyway, don't use the front door. So my dad drives, he was a cab driver also in his spare time, uh, drives his little cab, parks it in the back, goes and has dinner with them. They cook him their favorite meal. And I remember decades later, my dad telling me that story. He says, that is the, that is the first time a white person acknowledged my existence and my personhood and it changed my life. Now what was interesting is that that experience not only changed my dad's life, but there was a tremendous cost to the welcome for these two ladies. Because now they were known as the nigger-loving bitches in their community. They were ostracized. They had to pay the price. So, so hospitality is not just cute little dinner party with high tea with, you know, triangular cucumber sandwiches. There is, a, there is a dangerous component to courageous hospitality that, that is always the mark of a genuine kingdom community. I, re I remember that the, the way that my dad told that story, again, decades after that had happened, that it had been a life-changing experience. And I, and I bet that if this is your disposition in your classroom, in your school, it communicates life to the people within your care. Actually, interesting, let me tell you another story. On my, on my mother's side, uh, 
So my, my mother was born in 1943. I'm going to let you do the math there for a minute. So dad was born in 23. Mom was born in 43. Right in the middle of World War II. Her parents were pastors of two small Baptist churches. And in 1943, at the end of the brutal winter, their church building was confiscated by the Waffen-SS, by German soldiers. And it was a, a three-story building. And the top floor of their church building was used kind of as a, as a lookout, as the control center for the German soldiers in that area. And uh, they were still allowed to use kind of the, the basement area and the sanctuary. And for some reason, my grandparents decided that it was a good idea to begin hiding Jews and resistance workers in the basement of that same building. I, re- I remember asking my, my grandmother, I said, grandmother, you know, with, with all due respect, like, like, what were you thinking? Uh, if you know anything about World War II in the Netherlands, this is, if they would, if they would have been discovered, uh, they, would have, they would have not even bothered putting them on a train to a concentration camp. They would have, that would have been the end of them. And I, I remember asking my, my grandmother, you know, at what point did you think that this was a good decision, knowing that you had four small children in the home, later on five, and that you had to live off the kindness of other people. It's not like you had lots of money. I mean, my, my grandfather got no income from the church, and they lived off the kindness of other people. So sometimes bread would show up in the front door, or chicken and eggs would show up, or the greengrocer would drop by some vegetables. And I remember my asking my grandmother, I said, Oma, why, why did you think this was going to be okay? Were you ever worried that you were going to run out? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, Tim, uh, one thing you should know, in the kingdom of God, there is always enough. There is always enough. So there's a certain, there is a certain mindset. There's a certain disposition. That is dangerous hospitality. Now you might, you might not think this has anything to do with the classroom. It has absolutely everything to do with the practices and dispositions that you cultivate among fellow teachers, administrators, but also with the students that are in your classroom. Actually, interestingly enough, this is extra credit. Uh, I remember asking my grandmother, if, they, uh, if there was ever a close call. And, uh, and she, she must have told me this story maybe 20 times. She said there was one Sunday night where, where they were done doing ministry and she was making some final, doing some final cleanup uh, in the kitchen. And there was no one in the building, but one of the soldiers had come from the third floor through the fellowship hall into the sanctuary to the kitchen where, where he met my grandmother. And while they ran into each other on that Sunday evening, there was a, there was a disturbance in the basement below uh, made by one of the resistance workers. And it, my, my grandmother said this was one of those moments where uh, she knew that he knew that she knew that there was someone down there. And my, my grandma said that's when the moment she saw her life flash before her eyes. But the German soldier points to the basement and then goes like this. Shh. 
And then he walks over to the organ at the front of the sanctuary and he starts playing hymns, Lutheran hymns that he had heard as a kid in Germany. And that, she said that that became a regular occurrence, that he would just kind of meander over to the organ during the week because he knew that there were people there. They were never detected. My, my grandfather ended up getting some kind of medallion from the, or recognition from the Dutch government. But all it was, was this vibrant, ancient, courageous practice of hospitality. And in every life-giving community that we've always been a part, this has been a signature, a hallmark. Secondly, we, we also found out that every Christian community that has marks of being toxic or not life-giving, one way or another, practices deception where the truth is not spoken. Now, sometimes this means that people lie and embezzle money. They don't portray uh, the facts. I mean, there, there are all kinds of different ways. But the, probably the way that we saw deception show up the most was in slander and gossip about people, speaking about people who are not physically present and bearing false witness about them. How many of you have ever seen this? I mean, if you've been part of a Christian community, you'll notice where gossip, once it takes over, it, is, it spreads like gangrene, and it becomes contagious. Now, now watch, watch what happens, for, for example. Let's say, Mike, you're at Holland Christian, right? So Mike, is a, Mike was a Wheaton student, a recent graduate of the class of 2018. And imagine, Mike, that I call... Let's say I call your superintendent. And I say, you know, uh, and Mike's not physically present. And I say, you know, if I were you, I would not only uh, check Mike's uh, chapel attendance record, but I would actually check his transcript. But I think some of his papers were maybe plagiarized, and he had a reputation for shady business on campus, his relationship with women was suspect. I just thought, you know, from one brother to another, you should just know these things. It's gossip, right? Of course, all of this is hypothetically speaking. Mike, Mike was in perfect standing. <laughs> but now, now watch, watch what happens. My relationship with Mike has been changed. He doesn't know this. But I have borne false witness. I've been deceptive about him behind his back. And I'm actually kind of nervous that there is going to be a time where someone is going to find out that I have been bearing false witness about him behind his back. And it is going to change my relationship. And in fact, because I feel guilty about this, I actually feel ill at ease with Mike. Now something else happens. Mike's relationship with the superintendent has also changed. He has no idea why. <coughs> But even though he thought Mike was great, now all of a sudden he's wondering, well, maybe, maybe I should check out. Maybe, maybe there is something about this. But not only are those two relationships changed, my relationship with the superintendent's changed because he now knows that if I would speak about Mike that way, it is just a matter of time until I begin speaking about him that way. And this is the way gossip and slander and tail-bearing and exaggerating and all other forms of deception in community work. They, they tear away at the fabric of a community. 
Uh, for some of you, that might mean uh, that, that all of a sudden you get an anonymous letter written to you by someone in the community. And so we don't, we don't like you. We don't approve of your decision. We don't like the changes that you're making. And all of a sudden, that one particular practice, that toxic practice of deception, actually holds you hostage. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Uh, how many of you have ever gotten like anonymous notifications of some kind? Uh, I, get, I get them all the time. Uh, actually, one of my mentors at Calvin Seminary used to say there's two things we should not know. Uh, we should not know when and how we're going to die, and we should not know what's inside an anonymous letter. <laughs> but it, it, even if you haven't received an anonymous letter, it might mean uh, something like this. This is a classic Christian community thing. Uh, don't you know, Mr. Principal, that people out there are saying that, and you fill in the blank, or I have heard, or there are tons of people out there who think, and really what they're doing is they're taking their own opinion. It's usually them and their spouse who think this, and they're using the leverage of the entire community, but they don't want to actually own their words, but they're using hearsay as a way to deceive. How many of you have ever seen that pattern happen? Okay. If I, had a, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me, hey, Pastor Blackman, people out there who are saying, and I'm thinking, this is a model that helped me give some sense of understanding to how this is put together. Here is the, what a thriving community looks like, where we speak the truth. We own our words. We stand by our words. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together has a fascinating little chapter. It is called The Ministry of Holding Your Tongue. And in it, he basically argues for this, that we should refrain or at least be extremely careful when speaking about other people who are not physically present. And he actually says this in the context even of saying positive things about somebody. But imagine, notice, notice what happens. When you begin talking about someone who is not physically present, rarely does it cast them in a positive light. Most of the time, they don't end up better. Their reputation is not enhanced. The stories that are told about them rarely are favorable. So what would happen, even as, as teachers and administrators, we adopted that as a practice. That, you know, so maybe in the case of a classroom evaluation, it is your job to talk about someone. I get that. But by and large, be very careful when speaking about other people and speak the truth is always a telltale sign of a life-giving community. I don't know if you're ready to see more uh, t examples of toxic community, but we also noticed in all of our communities that there were always acts of betrayal, promise-breaking. And promise-breaking could be anything, it could be something serious, where uh, you know, somebody had seriously violated their employment contract, uh, they had broken a promise, they, uh, let, me, let me give you an example. One of the things that happened to me, there was, uh, there was, some, there was an elder in our church, uh, we had done life together, uh, he and his wife used to babysit our kids, we'd been on vacation together, and from one day to the next, he, he sends me a one-sentence email, and he says, without any explanation, he says, Tim, uh, effective immediately, I resign as elder of River Rock Church. Please take my uh, contact information out of your database. Do not contact us anymore, sincerely. Your brother in Christ, Bruce. 
And you can imagine that the broken promises as a friend, the broken promises as a fellow elder in a church, in a church plant, in a fledgling stage, was absolutely debilitating and disheartening for us. Uh, I, I imagine that if we were to compare notes and tell some stories, you've been on the receiving end of some broken promises. Uh, this happened recently for me. One of my, one of my employees just kind of bailed up. She said she was going to come back. She didn't end up coming back at all and gave me six days, six hours notice before the interim position, uh, the interim person was going to leave. Just like that. Broken promises. Leaving me scrambling today to find her replacement tomorrow. How many of you have ever had a promise broken to you that had a negative effect on your community? So in some ways, what you see with these acts of betrayal is they begin to tear away at the fabric of your community. Now, the examples that I gave you are pretty extreme, and they're, they're usually life-changing. But broken promises could also mean a teacher who consistently does not show up on time. That's a broken promise. A student who consistently does not do their work in the way that is required of them. It's a broken promise. Uh, I mean, you, you, can, you can do the math on, on, on some of this, uh, but there are countless small acts of betrayal that begin to tear away at the fabric of a community. A life-giving community, on the other hand, is one marked by fidelity. That's, an, that's really the, that's the term that uh, Christine ended up using for, uh, for keeping our promises. And when you think of it, the, the pro- keeping promises, they are, they are like the, the load-bearing structures underneath this room. I don't know exactly what's underneath this room, but there is a foundation, and that foundation holds up this entire building. We don't see them, but if you were to take them away, this room would collapse the ceiling would collapse. Promises not only keep our marriages together, our churches together, but they keep our schools together, they keep our classrooms together. And they, they breathe life into our community. Christine would say that, that fidelity is like oxygen for a living organism. And it is that for a community as well. So you start beginning to see a picture here of what a thriving organization looks like. It's a, place, it's a place where everyone feels welcome, where words matter and people speak the truth and we speak life-giving words and truth and love about one another and we keep our promises. Okay, I have one more bit of bad news. And this, I imagine you know, uh, several of the examples that you had already given uh, showed evidence of this. And every toxic community is marked by resentment. Uh, We decided for a long time whether or not we should call this resentment or complaining or grumbling. Uh, But it it is incredibly contagious. And it can be complaints about why are all these changes? Why are the students doing this? Why are the teachers doing this? Why are the parents doing this? And it becomes a regular part of the organization. And you may, you may not even think of it. It's just people talking. It's just people dealing with day-to-day life. But one of the things that we found is it is, in the end, exhausting 
and debilitating and discouraging to constantly be focused on all the things that are not happening. And here you see this picture of what a toxic organization looks like. Apply it to your classroom. Apply it to uh, a church, maybe, or any other club that you might be a part of. And here is what a thriving organization looks like. The last part, the last practice of the four, is that a life-giving community is always marked by gratitude. And that even if you face changes, even if there are curricular changes or personnel changes or changes in finances, that there is still the cultivation of an abiding sense that God has done right by us. And again, this is a, this is a practice and a disposition. It's a disposition in the sense that I am, I am, I am looking for the good and the beautiful. I'm trying to notice the graces in everyday moments if I am practicing gratitude. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this in your classroom. I do this with some of my student, some of the student groups that I lead all the time, where we'll, at the beginning of the meeting, we'll just go around the room and we'll ask, what is one thing that you are grateful for today? And there is, there is nothing that changes the atmosphere as much as that simple question. You, all of a sudden you begin to see people get a twinkle in their eye. Now if I ask you, what are all the things that you can complain about, it'll suck the air right out of the room. <laughs> but if I ask the question, what is something, what is something beautiful that you've seen today? What is something good that you've seen today? And here's the thing. Whenever those things are shared, they, they become contagious. Uh, one, of the, one of the leaders uh, of the of, a, of an organization called Good Works. They, they serve the poorest of the poor in Appalachia. Uh, Keith Wasserman was part of, this, uh, part of this project. And one of the things that they do is they work with people who their staff gets paid very little. They work long hours. Most of their work is thankless and hard and difficult and unseen. And he wanted to start practicing gratitude with them. So, so one of the things that he started doing is... Uh, Keith and his team would begin doing research on a particular staff person who they appreciate. And they would start taking, they would basically start a year of doing research of all the things that they're doing, taking pictures, and then one day they would show up at work, and that day would be called, Surprise, This Is Your Life. They would have like a birthday cake and banners and balloons, and everybody in the community would take time to say, this is what we love about you. And in the last year, this is what we've seen about you. And so they would, they, they would plan an entire year to have this party. And you would never know, all of a sudden you walk in to a surprise, this is your life celebration. Because, and, and people would hear things spoken over them that most of us actually never hear until our funeral. And then it's really too late. Uh, we, we do a small version of this in our own family. I've got four kids ages uh, 20 to 12. And we do it around birthday. We call it birthday blessings. You get the red, you are a special plate. How many of you have it? 
Am I really the only one who's got the red UR special plate? Okay, you have it. You just have to use it. It's a golden fork. Oh, it's a golden fork. Okay. All right. So, so take, your, take your golden fork or your red UR special plate, and then all of us take turns and say, okay, Jessica or Luke or David or Jonathan, this is what we love about you. This is why it's amazing to be your father. And we speak words of gratitude to one another. And it breathes life into the uh, into the particular community. So, uh, ba- basically, what you see here, I have tried uh, to implement in the four churches that I've pastored since going through this, and now at Wheaton College, we're also using this as kind of the way the way that we handle life together. So, all our RAs have had training in this. Our student development folks, a lot of our professors that did a faculty development day on this, and it, it's really a way for us to help understand what is happening. So you might imagine there's conflict in the college, and, and like many schools, we're not without it. And the first thing that we do is we begin trying to look at, okay, which of the deformations are we seeing? Is this a matter of promises being broken? Are we speaking the truth? Is someone feeling left out? Uh, are we just complaining? And then we use this as a model to, uh, to see uh, what we might be working on. I've actually, uh, I have a little handout for you. If you, would, uh, if you would pass these out, you can take one of these that has this little model on there. And uh, you, can, you can use that. So I'm, I'm super curious. How many of you can give, can you give an example of one or more of these practices or, or how, they, how they are connected to one another or any questions you might have about it? Um, this, is, this is maybe the most helpful part even of our time together. Uh, where have you seen this at play in your school? Yeah. It's not really as much with the organization, but I think about this old movie, Babette's Feast, yes. which is this story of this yeah, insular, you know, yeah. Norwegian town, and they're all very concentrated on themselves, and by the end of it, they're moving from this toxic, decades-old resentment and uh, exclusion of the new into this gratitude and hospitality. Yeah. Um, and I can, and, and that's that's very meaningful. Yeah, that's a per, actually. I think we we watch that together. Uh, by the way, this is not a commercial. I don't get any of the royalties from this because I didn't write the book. But Christine ended up putting our findings together in this book called Living into Community, and it is a book about those four practices that I just mentioned. What is your last name? P O H L. Living into Community: Cultivating Practices That Sustain Us. Christine P O H L. And I also recommend, highly recommend her book, uh, Making Room on Hospitality. I think there's lots of applications for people who leave classrooms and institutions. All the way in the back. Okay, kind of a comment, but also maybe a question for you because I've noticed in you know, uh, our, our Christian community, you know, there's times where we'll be complaining about you know, an administrator or bringing out about something about a particular student that we see as a negative quality. Um, you know, and then somebody will, you know, might say, 
yeah, well, they also do this, and you know, the person who's complaining or kind of getting things off their chest will you know, quickly say, or even about a student, oh, you know, there, you know, there are very many good positive things. You know, I'm not saying, you know, so there's that you know, sense of, you know, there is some redeeming qualities, even if a student is you know, misbehaved or something, that there are good qualities about that. Is there a place for you know, that healthy venting you know, that doesn't turn into resentment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as, as educators, of course, part of your, your job is the overall educational and relational and even civic and spiritual formation of students, which sometimes involves evaluative conversations like that. I find very rarely is it helpful to me, to you, or to the student for me to vent or complain about them. To me, venting and complaining is different than having a proper evaluative conversation. Uh, one other part I would, I would add to that is I try to make it a practice to never say something about someone that I haven't actually shared with someone. And so if I need to have a conversation with a student, that I would be tempted to complain to someone else about, I think I, speaking the truth in love actually first means I need to go talk with that person. And I think that's actually doing justice to Bonhoeffer's principle of the ministry of holding your tongue. And here's another rule that I have. I, I try not to have any kind of conversation like this and certainly no conflict resolution through email. And this is a big part of that because a lot of times these conversations don't happen in person, but there's, a, you know, social scientists have told us that there's something called the, uh, the online disinhibition effect. I don't know if you know about that, where basically you say things through a technological medium that you would never say to someone face-to-face. -face. So, so I think if you said it to the person themselves, you say it face-to-face -face and not online or through text or, or probably an email message, I think certainly there's room for that, yeah. I don't know if that's helpful or not, or you want to push back on that. Um, it's such a ridiculous profession of teaching under <laughs> the authority of an administrator, yeah. working with teenagers. Um, mental health-wise, we can't bottle that up. And, yeah. and you know, as flawed creatures, we only have so much grace that we can spend on others without running out of it for, our, for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I would say, let me, let me take another stab at this. For you as a teacher to be part of a healthy community means that you need to have hospitality. In other words, Christine would sometimes call hospitalities uh, cultivating an environment in which you can flourish that, that's what matters for you, right? So you need a place where you can do that. And you need a place where you can do that for the long haul, where you can keep your promises for a long time. That means that you need to have the kinds of relationships where in a, in a godly and healthy way, you can talk about your troubles. Now that may mean doing that with a colleague or with a trusted friend, but I, I definitely think, I mean, that's something that Pat, that's incredibly important for pastors as well. Now, doing that in a way that doesn't just, you know, 
become negative tail-bearing and complaining is tricky. That's not healthy. Uh, but yeah, I think in order, you, you want to cultivate an environment in which you can thrive as a teacher and do it for the long haul. Yeah. Yes? I was excited to hear you talk about hospitality because when we had rights at first, I just brought belonging, and then everybody else shares such much more wise things that I am like, oh, I won't say anything, raise my hand. But yeah. um, I'm wondering if hospitality, do you feel that is the, that's where it has to start, or are you feeling that these are equally balanced pillars? That's a great question. So we, we spent a long time talking about that, which, what's the, what's the internal logic behind it? And that's one of the fun things about this, because you'll begin, now that you know this, you will begin applying this to every situation, every classroom, every council meeting, every administrator's meeting, because you'll see, oh, oh, this is what's happening. So in the book, Christine actually begins with gratitude. Because out of a overwhelming sense of the superabundance of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We can make room for other people and cultivate an environment in which they can flourish and thrive. So gratitude flows into hospitality and it is that environment, that life-giving environment for us that allows us to be faithful and keep our promises. And it is in the context of faithful promise-keeping that truth-telling can happen. That's kind of the internal logic. And you, and you might imagine, even if you, if you take a fidelity and truth-telling side by side, if I'm going to speak the truth to you, but I don't actually have a relationship with you, it completely changes the tenor of that conversation. But if I am committed, if I keep promises to your long-term well-being in an environment that's hospitable and that is grateful for who you are, I can speak the truth about something you've got to work on. But it really needs those other ones in order to, uh, to, for it to be a, a thriving organization. Yeah. It's a great question. Someone else, comment or a question? All right, well, since nobody else is saying, I have yes. a question. <laughs> so, um, I'm, my experience is my, I'm teaching at a school where my kids first started attending, and then I was able to join staff later. And so, even though in some ways we had a lot in common, we were we were kind of outsiders. So I, I look at things I think a little differently than people who've been there for years and years, or maybe graduated themselves sure. from that place. And um, I, we found our niche when my um, my oldest never really did, but my middle one and my youngest found their niche in cross country. And we found hospitality there. We did not find it other places. And there's yeah. a lot of wounds already. Yes. That, that yes. We have. How do we, um, now that I'm a teacher on staff, how can we build this into our families where we have, I mean, I think the teachers really do try to include kids, yeah. but how do we build that in our community? Because like my heart, it just aches for families who say, my child can't make a connection. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is where it, the... You know, I, I mentioned Leviticus because God actually uses the, the liminal experience, the experience of, of exclusion on the part of the Israelites to develop the imagination that becomes the greatest tool for their practice of hospitality. Now, that's a, it's a big sentence, but there's a lot there. In other words, 
I have to begin imagining what it's like to be an outsider. The problem with that is I don't necessarily see the outsiders because I might be an insider. I don't see the invisible ones, the marginalized ones, the unseen ones. And so it is, it's, I think it's in talking to people who are transfers or late additions to your school, who are genuinely outsiders one way or the other, and beginning to see what is it like to actually come in. What's it like to come into this building? What's it like to dress a certain way? What's it like to come from a certain part of town? And to begin imagining the kinds of hurdles that they would have to step over in order to become a normal part. Well, begin addressing those. And I would say begin addressing those before they need to be addressed, before someone ends up wounded as a result of it. But it's, it's, it's really an act of the imagination. Begin thinking, what do strangers need? What do people who are not yet here need from me right now to put into place, into the structures, in the classroom, so that we can make room for them? So that when they do come, they immediately say, oh, they thought of me. I mean, that's one of the things we're working on with international students all the time right now. We have, we have students from 106 different countries, and we're like, we don't know exactly what they need, but we're trying to find ways to make Wheaton the place where they don't feel like a constant outsider because they didn't grow up in America. At my kids' school, um, any new families were assigned a host family that we met with them before school began and had a picnic. Okay. And then the kids, we you would fold them and, oh, it's going to be school carnival. Love so it. it's my job to call this new family and say, oh, you arrived at 4 o'clock and actually the week before you signed up for these things. So you were their mentor. It was a mentor family. And Love when, it. when we joined the school, we had it, and then later we became one, and that was yeah. just such a great practice for people. Yeah. Okay, one last one, and then we're, I think we're out of time. Mine's more of a comment than a question, but as I watch this, our school, and I'm, I'm a principal, but I'm a new principal, new to Christian education. We're getting ready to start strategic planning, yeah. put our school improvement plan together again, and so it's a few years when we do this. I see this being huge in how you develop your strategic plan. Absolutely. Because th that is our strategic plan. It should be a strategic plan of every school. Yeah is how do we thrive, how do we, and it's a, it's a combination of those things, but almost everything that we want to put in our plan is going to fall under one of those four categories. Right, right. And you'll be able, whenever there's a breakdown, you're going to be able to trace it down more often than not to one of these. And at least this will give you, hopefully, a framework to understand what makes for either thriving or life-giving organizations. Thanks for coming. Really appreciate it. <laughs>